Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The rate of new U.S. jobs creation slowed as unemployment dropped to 3.6% in the United States and wage growth was stronger than expected, sparking debate about the next steps by the Federal Reserve to control inflation and whether or not that will lead to a recession. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen became the second top Biden administration official to visit Beijing to rekindle links, protesting China's treatment of U.S. companies while also encouraging cooperation where possible, including on climate investment. Germany's Rheinmetall continues its role, emerging as the second supplier for center fuselages for the F-35 Lightning II fighter, filling avoid left by Turkey's ejection from the program that was slowing production given that at this point Northrop Grumman is the only center fuselage maker. President Biden admits the United States is running short of artillery ammunition as the rationale for sending cluster munitions to Ukraine, a vitally important move that has been criticized given more than 100 nations have banned the weapons that can hurt civilians. Spirit Aerosystems workers approved a 36% pay raise 36% pay raise offered by the company and returned to work on Wednesday, resuming production. Uh, The air travel situation, NATO's big meeting, uh, Britain's global combat aircraft program, and other tidbits as we drift uh, into the middle of a very hot summer. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Slash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us today. As always, Vago, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yes, thank you, Vago. Yeah, great to be on Vargo. Thanks. And if uh, Richard sounds a little bit different, it's because he is joining us uh, from uh, Indonesia. And thanks all of you for making time on what has been a very busy weekend for you all. Um, Ron, uh, start us off. Strong U.S. uh, job uh, growth, uh, even if it slowed uh, a little bit inflation now at 3.6%, which is uh, a fairly incredible rate. That said, uh, wages uh, continue to rise in part because of the demand for labor. Uh, and then we've got antics on the Hill that suggest a very bumpy ride for the defense budget that hits uh, the floor next week with some 1,500 amendments. How did the group perform and, and why and what were the drivers? Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the S&P uh, as an index for the week, um, it was down uh, about 1.2%. And a lot of that had to do with the uh, ADP uh, non-farm payroll number that came out at 497,000, which was way above what people were thinking. Uh, the next day, you know, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, June job gains came out, uh, and that was 225,000, uh, down from May's 306,000. So that kind of offset, uh, you know, what what ADP ADP was saying. So there's a bit of a tug of war going on right now in um, the employment markets has asked you like what's the real number what's going on uh, that sort of thing uh, but but broadly if you look uh, at the at the macro environment the 10-year which we talk about every week uh, is com- comfortably above four percent now it's about you know uh, almost 4.1 percent uh, approaching its five-year highs um, crude oil took a move up for the first time in quite some time Brent's nearly 80 and WTI is uh, nearly 75. Both moved up on the order of call it kind of $350 to $4 a barrel. Uh, the 30-year average uh, mortgage rate in the U.S. 
is now at its 18-year highs. It's about 7.4%. So mortgage rates have moved higher. Um, so you're seeing you know, the, the entire kind of fixed income complex uh, react to um, you know the, the job numbers and what's going on. Uh, and you know the question really now is, you know, does the Fed stop at at you know five and a quarter, five fifty, five seventy five? How many more um, times does the Fed have to have to raise rates? The VIX index, you know, the, the measure of you know, volatility in the market was up. No surprise this week, it kind of came alive again. Was up around 15. Uh, last we spoke about it, it was about 13. And then if you look at the performance of our stocks this week, they really weren't all that different from the market, right? The market was down, you know, 1.2. Northrop was down about half a percent. Lockheed half a percent. L3 Harris half a percent. General Electric uh, was up uh, just a smidge, maybe 16 basis points. GD was down half a percent. Aircap Lessor was down half a percent. Boeing was up half a percent. So you didn't see really major moves moves around what was going on in the broader market. And I think a lot of that had to do with uh, some of the more uh, macro focus uh, of what's going on. Uh, in, in, uh, indeed, uh, very interesting drivers. And is any of the spectacle, and just you can give me sort of the yes or no answer on this, is any of the anything that's going on in Washington driving any of this, uh, whether it's the amendments or, you know, and anything else? Or, or the prospect that there might even be a government shutdown at some point this year? Not yet. It will. You know, but the market usually kind of waits to the last minute for that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, not yet. I always love asking it because in part, right, Wall Street doesn't care until it has to care. And then otherwise it doesn't. I, I would love to blissfully go through life uh, that way. Um, Sash, uh, walk us through uh, the week uh, in uh, Europe. Uh, and talk to us a little bit about the, the Talis uh, win. Uh, you put an interesting note out, right? Did Talis win or Saab lose? Uh, because in part, Saab has also been on a, on a roll. You know, I mentioned that Rheinmetall, a company you cover very closely, has also been on a roll. Anyway, walk us through. Yeah, okay. I mean, look, first of all, I, I think what we saw this week was um, post-Paris air show hangover. Um, stocks came off quite, quite badly this week. Um, European stocks overall off about 2.5%. The civil stocks were off over 3 on average. Defence stocks down about 2.4%. Um, uh, it's, not, it's a pretty good trade normally for uh, aerospace and defence stocks that you buy before air shows and you sell you know, in the middle stroke just towards the end of the air show because at that stage, most of the good news for the quarter sort of is perceived to be in the price. And, you know, we're certainly seeing that at the moment with stocks trading off um, quite significantly. I couldn't detect very much pattern um, in things. Um, the, uh, you know, worst performer was MTU actually, which was a uh, civil mm -hmm. stock, Safran also, um, uh, and two of those were off about 6%. But, you know, there are a whole slew of defense companies, um, uh, BAE, Babcock, Kongsberg, um, and and even you know Rheinmetall uh, and and Talis all off about sort of four four and a half percent. So I think the market just felt that the airshow trade was was over and they wanted to um, they wanted to bail. Now what I thought was very interesting was that Talis, which has had a pretty good couple of weeks in terms of orders for radars, and I mean our thesis is that this is a fact. You know, if there are two jobs you want at the moment in the defence industry, one is owning or two two assets you want to be owning. One is you want to be owning an ammunition plant, and the other is you want to be owning a radar plant because they are in phenomenal demand at the moment as a consequence of um, of Ukraine. Uh, Talis has now had four big, or you know, certainly three big and one 
you know, medium-sized uh, ground-based air surveillance radar uh, contracts in just in the last three weeks. That's really unusual. And put it in perspective, these are sort of 100 to 250 million uh, euro contracts. So they are um, they, they start getting big enough to move the needle a bit. The one that most interested us last week was an order from Sweden, uh, which is ordering the, the Thales Smart L radar from actually Thales's Netherlands business. Smart L normally appears on the top of warships. Uh, it's the primary long range air, uh, air defense radar, air surveillance radar for Type 45 destroyers for the Royal Navy, Horizon uh, destroyers for. Um, France and the Netherlands. Uh, it's a very, very big, highly capable radar. It's been upgraded uh, for uh, an anti-tactical uh, ballistic missile capability. Um, but here's Sweden ordering it as a land-based radar. Um, they haven't said how many, they haven't said how much, but we reckon, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, do the recognized air picture for Sweden, which is what the, the requirement apparently is, then it's probably four or five radars. Um, and that makes this one of the one of the bigger pure radar contracts we've seen this year. Um, I would have expected Saab to be in with a chance here with their Giraffe 8 radar, but I think Smartel is just bigger. Um, it's uh, probably got uh, longer range um, and so forth. But it's a very interesting case of, you know, Saab had a very good win in electronic warfare um, a couple of weeks ago where they won the German uh, Eurofighter uh, electronic warfare uh, contract. And that clearly was a, a big lose for, for Hensolt. Now here's Talis taking a, a radar contract in their home turf. And it just shows that, you know, European governments are increasingly trying to buy, you know, the, the best they can, the most available. And they're very slightly less worried about their national contractors. Their national tr contractors have got plenty of work. They don't have to spoon feed them everything. Um, and it, it right. just gives them a little bit more uh, you know, freedom in this regard. But, you know, this is a very significant contract for Dallas. Um, and uh, I want to ask you a, a little bit about uh, war production later in the program when we talk uh, about the U.S. shortage in munitions and one of the reasons that the United States has, has, has decided to make the decision um, to send cluster uh, weapons uh, to Ukraine, which they can use to great effect. Um, Richard, uh, I, I want to get to um, briefly... Um, I'm also going to ask you guys uh, about uh, the spirit uh, deal. But Richard, I wanted to ask you uh, about Janet Yellen's uh, trip. Obviously, she's on the heels of Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken's uh, trip uh, to Beijing. Uh, there, she delivered some hardwood uh, to Chinese officials protesting Beijing's treatment of U.S. and other Western uh, firms. We're also encouraging greater cooperation uh, where possible, suggesting that that uh, climate would be a good place to do. Then I should point out that the U.S. Uh, chief climate official, John Kerry, uh, is going to be visiting Be Beijing to urge more climate cooperation uh, as well, even though that's a bit fraught because China's, you know, a leader in green tech in part because of government investment and the United States now is stepping up its own investment and worrying, uh, you know, whether you're in Beijing or whether in, in, in Europe, uh, although there are knock-on benefits to doing that when the United States does invest in that, especially for its allies and partners. Anyway, how do you, how do you sort of gauge her message and its impact, right, as, as somebody who is a very pro-free trader, um, you know, I mean, does this move any needle at all, in part because almost every single thing the Chinese do anyway is linked to the government, right? There isn't as much free trade as we've convinced ourselves, even if a lot of people are making a lot of money. 
Yeah, you know, it's not terribly promising. You know, the history of uh, trying to lever the Chinese government into doing the right thing from a, you know, market economy standpoint is, uh, shall we say, unblemished by success. And it's pretty clear that everything going on with Boeing has nothing to do with, uh, you know, overhang of MAC certification issues or, you know, even commercial demand. Uh, they're taking Airbuses. Um, and there's clearly a signal there. Um so short of some kind of grand, look, if you don't do this for us, we will retaliate or we will, you know, ease up in other areas if you agree to resume taking delivery of Boeing Gemini. Short of something more direct, more, shall we say, transactional, I, I don't think getting them to, you know, people better from a market economy standpoint, it's going to have any effect whatsoever. As for the green economy standpoint, you know, it, it, it really doesn't affect our industry. It, you know, it's going to certainly affect other industries, uh, obviously, whether it's, you know, mining of materials that uh, go into, uh, you know, battery systems or, or alternative energy. That's, that's all very good. But, you know, the one real clear path towards decarbonization in our business is, of course, uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And there, China's role is pretty marginal compared to what's going on in the West. So unfortunately, the real area of potential gain, the high priority, decarbonization, doesn't really involve China as far as the aviation business goes. And the one area where they would make a difference to the industry, which of course is the sheer size of their jetliner market, well, it's gotten completely politicized and it doesn't look like anything uh, Janet Yellen's visit is, uh, is going to do is going to change that. Um, ultimately, you want to be able to have an open uh, dialogue, even with your adversaries. We managed to do that with uh, the Soviet Union uh, as uh, as well. Uh, right. And unfortunately, uh, the relationship between uh, the United States and China is, is developing the way it is, in, you know, almost almost entirely because of China's compounded actions over the past several uh, decades. Um, Sash or Ron, if you guys want to briefly uh, comment uh, at all uh, about that, I mean, let me go to Sash uh, first, right? I mean, any sense from a European perspective as Europe tries to grapple with what a trade you know, sort of a sensible trade policy with uh, China looks like almost every nation is dependent on it. China and the middle Stadt is more dependent on uh, China trade, but even Germans are recognizing that the clock is ticking on that, right? That the Chinese have sort of a systemic ability to displace industries, right? It's less about, it's cooperating as long as we have your uh, partner, uh, Nick Cunningham has written kind of thoughtfully about what sort of the Chinese model is, right? They buy for you, you know, through the first three, they buy for you, the next three, they co-manufacture, then they're on the market with a substandard product, then they actually, you know, manage to displace you in the market on, on the very product you're making. I mean, what's, is there sort of a coalescing sort of European approach to what co-opetition looks like with China? I don't, I'm afraid I don't think there is. I think that every European country um, behaves slightly or thinks slightly differently. And it very much depends on how much trade they have. Um, Germany is the least likely to uh, go towards um, you know, outright um, you know, opposition to China because Germany is just far too economically tied up. Um, and it will take something very, very serious before Germany uh, you know, reverses that policy. This is exactly what we saw um, with Germany's relationship with Russia uh, and with the Nord Stream um, pipelines. You know, it took the invasion of 
uh, Ukraine before Germany uh, reverse its policy. France somewhere in the middle. I mean, clearly, you know, parts of French industry, in particular Airbus, are incredibly dependent uh, on uh, China. Other parts slightly less so. But uh, President Macron is, you know, has shown he's very, very reluctant to be dragged into supporting um, U.S. foreign policy. Period. Um, that's part of the way that he differentiates himself and uh, and you know France's position in the world. Um, uh, and I think it will take quite a shock for, uh, for for that to change. The UK is probably more on the hawkish side, as are uh, a number of the Baltic states. But I, you know, I don't think you should um, expect a, uh, uh, you know, European nations to coalesce together until, for example, there's an invasion of Taiwan, in which case, you know, it could happen rather faster. Quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air uh, and naval coverage. Ron, uh, I want to uh, go to you on uh, Spirit. Uh, their workers uh, approved the contract. We've discussed this over the course of many weeks. They ended their struck, uh, strike and they're uh, back at work. I think they went back to work on Wednesday. What's what's sort of the aggregate impact right, of this work? stoppage. I mean, we've talked about sort of the broader tectonic impacts, but is it possible to gauge what, you know, the impact on Boeing and its other, uh, um, you know, because the company is a key subcontractor across the piece, both on defensive, but especially on the commercial aviation ecosystem for Boeing? Yeah. I mean, the key construct contractors cost structure, labor. Oh, hold on, hold on. Just restate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the key contractors labor just went up in price. So, I mean, that's going to cause one of two things to happen. If if Spirit can't renegotiate something with Boeing, uh, that impacts Spirit's financial position, um, which isn't great. Uh, their, their balance sheet isn't in, in, in great shape. Or they'll have to go to Boeing and uh, renegotiate some pricing and just kind of pass through at least some of um, the, in, the increased labor expense. Um, uh, that hasn't happened yet. Um, I would imagine as, as we go bumping along that, that will happen at some point. Uh, and we'll see how Boeing responds to that. Um, and I think maybe more importantly, are there lessons in this for Boeing to learn in their negotiations with the IAM in Seattle that they're going to have to do next year, uh, with the union. That, that's another union that hasn't negotiated anything since, you know, it's been over 10 years. Uh, and the last contract was negotiated with, I believe, a management team that viewed themselves as wanting to break the back of the union. I think that was uh, under Mr. McNerney. Um, so we'll, we'll see where we are. Um, that being said, it does seem like Boeing's in a better starting point. If you look at the, uh, the average wages in uh, Boeing in Seattle, uh, and you compare that to average aerospace wages across the industry, um, they've trended upwards, where in uh, in Wichita they trended downwards relative to the industry average. So at least um, you know optically they look like they're they're starting from a more aligned uh, starting point than maybe what happened in, in Wichita. But I would expect uh, labor after not you know having a new contract for over a decade and having lived through all the the disruption of, of COVID to, to want something for that. 
Indeed, and I think that's uh, something other uh, unions, and not just other unions, right, but workers in general have been calling about, you know, sort of the middle class lot in America has been declining uh, as those, you know, at, at the top uh, do better. And that's been fueling populism on, on both sides of the um, political aisle. Richard, do you want to uh, dive in uh, with anything to add uh, in this? And Sash, you're welcome to as well, but I wanted to go to you about the impact of Ryan Metal and their center fuselage work. Go ahead, Richard. You know, I think it's really interesting because uh, anybody who's approached Boeing on the issue of contracts and inflation over the past few years, you know, i.e. from the standpoint of, gee, it's been decades since there's been inflation. Are you sure your contracts with airlines are covering that? They've said, oh, as a matter of fact, it's a fantastic source of fun and profit. We've got these escalation clauses and they kick in. And as a matter of fact, our costs aren't going up as fast as these escalation causes are, which means, of course, we profit from inflation. Hooray. And I can't help but wonder whether that all of that talk made the assumption that there, well, that this sort of thing wouldn't happen, that you wouldn't have spirit coming to them saying, hey, guys, actually, uh, we've got to pay our workers 36 percent more over four years that's not our problem. It's your problem. And then all of these assumptions about escalation clauses and resultant profitability from inflation are going to go out the window. So I think there's a bunch of assumptions that need to be revisited in the light of higher than expected labor costs. It's something that we've been uh, talking about uh, for uh, the last several uh, weeks. Um, we've got a lot more uh, to cover. And Sash, I'm going to go uh, to you uh, to talk about Rheinmetall. There's no way to put it. The company has been on a terrific uh, roll. Not only uh, did it recently uh, get down selected to compete against General Dynamics land systems for the optionally manned fighting vehicle for the U.S. Army, which is really um, the Bradley replacement program and something that's a high priority effort for the force on the ground system side of it. Not only is it the juggernaut of ammunition uh, production, uh, but it also now is the second uh, center fuselage source for the F-35 uh, program, re replacing a role that Turkey was performing until it was booted from the program for buying uh, Russian uh, air defense uh, systems. And, and it's, it's also created that capacity to start delivering, uh, right? So the announcement was sort of like, hey, not only are they doing it, but we're actually sort of ready ready to rumble. Obviously, we're now limited to however fast Northrop Grumman can make them, uh, which has not really been as fast as uh, certainly customers would like. What does this mean for the program, the capacity? But also a lot of people are looking at this and saying, wait a minute, Rheinmetall is doing aerostructures? What's that about? Which anybody who knows the company should not be surprised. But anyway, walk us through. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, first of all, this is direct offset. Uh, Germany buys F-35s. Germany needs work on F-35s. Um, defense offset is something that very few prime contractors like, but they, they have to suck it up. I mean, it's part of the, the whole the politics and optics of any big defense program. And without something like this, I think it would have been very difficult for, uh, for Germany optically to buy, buy the F-35, despite the requirement for the, um, uh, for the aircraft in, in the nuclear role. Uh, Rheinmetall has been very keen to, um, you know, try to get as much exposure to the uh, the spending by Germany uh, in the what's called the special fund, the hundred billion of um, uh, of extra defence spending, and they've been looking, particularly with Lockheed, interestingly, at aerostructures work for some time. They were going to be Lockheed's partner um, were, were if Germany had ordered the CH fifty three K, the uh, King Stallion, as the next heavy lift helicopter. Uh, Rheinmetall was. Um, uh, bidding to uh, 
um, either help assemble those or, or overhaul those and do part of the aerostructures. So, you know, it's an area that, that they've been happy to get into from their point of view. You know, it's a German engineering company. They should, you know, this should not be particularly um, complex for them. I think we tend to sort of sort of pigeonhole uh, German engineering companies a bit. High, you know, high precision engineering, you know, manufacturing fabrication is something that that many companies have a you know a capability to do. But I think they'll be delighted to get onto um, you know an air program and to ex expand their relationship with Lockheed. The other Lockheed relationship that's worth thinking about is that on. Uh, multi-launch rocket systems where they are going to co-develop a, uh, a an MLRS or a GMLRS type system uh, specifically to upgrade the the German uh, M MLRS systems and uh, you know so this you know this is a relationship that's well worth watching because I think it will get deeper still. Uh, Richard and Ron uh, any uh, any sort of uh, comment on that before we uh, go, I, I think, back to Sash to talk about the uh, Global Combat Aircraft Program or Tempest or however you want to uh, refer to it, because the, uh, the the UK and the partnership is looking at it as a global export item. But anything to add on the Center for Fuselage issue? Well, I would agree, of course, with Sash and what he says about Ragnatal completely. I'm a little concerned, though, about the issue of additional capacity. Um, you know, first of all, it's, you know, capable firm, good announcement, certainly beats, you know, relying on that single source, which was clearly capacity constrained at 156 per year. But then the announcement comes out and uh, Greg Ulmer over at Lockheed Martin says, oh, we might be able to surge to 10 additional aircraft per year. I, I <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I'm a little baffled by that. Um, you know, it, does it mean that Northrop Grumman is throttling back or does it mean that Ryan Metall is only building another, you know, 10 or something fuselages, center fuselages per year? Uh, or are there so many other bottlenecks at various other stages of the production program, you know, from castings and forgings all the way on up to something more, you know, more technical, you know, of, I don't know, radar chips or something? that it just could be that 165 per year is the new structural barrier that we ain't getting past. And given the number of orders that have piled on, you know, th despite this significant uh, announcement, uh, it could be that, um, well, a lot of customers are going to be disappointed when those production limits are simply hit. Um, and not, not being able to get your hands on your airplanes is something that drives companies to produce faster. We've seen that from Dassault uh, that was always historically resistant to increase production rates. And now they're doing so because their airplane is in demand. And, and if you're not delivering, then you open the opportunity for somebody else uh, to swoop in and to pick up the work. Uh, Ron, did you want to add anything uh, to this before we uh, move on? Yeah, I mean, maybe just one quick point. I mean, uh, you know, JJ has said on, on the air power report that you know, Northrop really kind of run into a, a capacity situation and with what they do and with Turkey not making uh, the forward fuselages. Um, if you do want to get the higher rates, particularly on the international aircraft, you have to do something. This seems like a reasonable thing to do. Uh, and a quick uh, word uh, to remind our audience to check out our other weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus uh, and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gerkler. Speaking of air power, uh, Sash, um, 
uh, or or Richard, whichever one of you want to start. Well, let's Sash, let's uh, start with you because it is the Global Combat Aircraft Program. Uh, when we were preparing for this, Richard noted uh, some of the work that that you did a, a couple of weeks ago, and obviously uh, there was the reporter's visit uh, up to Wharton to see the airplane before the Paris Air Show to sort of uh, you know to remind reporters who were going to Paris to stick it uh, to the French, Germans, uh, Spanish, and now Belgians who are working on the SCAF program. What, what are the global ambitions of this program and how reasonable are they? And I don't mean that. I, I am rooting for this program. And I'm going to hear more about this program next week when I'm in London at the uh, RAF's Global uh, Air and Space Chiefs Conference, as well as at the Royal International Air Tattoo, uh, where you're going to be and uh, Ron is going to be, by the way. So we can we can all do some reporting there. But what, what, what are, what, how is it we need to be thinking about this in the competitive context? In a competitive compact context, it's an F-15 replacement. And it will, it's being aimed at every single F-15 export customer, probably bar Israel, uh, because they won't be able to buy a comparable uh, twin engine, uh, you know, heavy uh, combat aircraft from the US because you're not going to sell them NGAF unless something changes dramatically there. So it's very, very significantly bigger than the uh, current generation European combat aircraft, um, specifically Eurofighter and Rafale. I mean, I, you know, our, our sort of rough scaling suggests it's at least 25 and probably 35% bigger than either of those. Um, and we, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, the parts that are already being built for it. Um, and, and, you know, just saying, you know, we're going to go out and replace the F-15 is a remarkable um, level of ambition uh, for uh, European um Companies, uh, SCAF, FCAS, the Franco-German Spanish program. Belgium is not in it yet and will not be part of the program until uh, the the next phase. Uh, Dassault has been really clear about that. Um, you know they want to be in, but they've they've got no re requirements to replace aircraft until the the early twenty forties. Um, uh, you know that that would have a similar ambition to uh, GCAP. My clear impression at the moment is that GCAP is at least four to five years ahead of SCAF and FCAS. And you know, we, we came back from the Paris Air Show disappointed by how little was being said about SCAF um, and the degree to which Dassault is much more interested in talking about Rafale and you know, the next big technology insert uh, and update for Rafale and indeed everything they can do for Rafale in terms of uh, loyal wingmen um, and uh, you know, in terms of combat cloud and so forth. Um, but. Uh, you know, GCAP is going for all of those now. And I think that, you know, the interesting an announcements coming out, out this week was about progress on the uh, flying technology demonstrator. You know, that will be an aircraft that will look very, very similar to uh, the, you know, the real thing. As we saw with the experimental aircraft program in the UK in the uh, 1980s, that begat Typhoon. Um, and also, I think we're probably going to start seeing some uh, progress on the, the loyal wingmen um, uh, you know, ideas that are being put put together by industry, probably in the next 12 to 18 months or so. So there, there's more to it than just a, a very, very large air vehicle demonstrator. Uh, it's the, the systems of systems stuff is, is seems to be making a great deal of progress. Richard, um, how, how does this program evolve and how much business can it take away from the F-15, especially when we see the F-15 paired with something like EPAWS, 
you know, by the admission of even some of the senior most leaders in the U.S. Air Force is 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 getting pretty close to fifth, sixth generation capability with a fourth generation airplane, which is one of the reasons why it's got a little bit more legs in the United States. Yeah, there's so much to be said about this program. Uh, but, you know, first of all, F-15, God, what an amazing story. Um, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, um, look, stories eventually come to an end. And this GCAP is going to be arriving sometime in the second half of the 2030s. Look, you know, you'd have to do a lot of work, engine work, airframe work, to make the F-15 survivable as a program beyond 2030-something. So I, I just think... I think this strategy is a really sound one. And the obvious segue to that is, wow, what a way to box up the Middle Eastern market because they spend top dollar on top end combat aircraft. And they've probably been a little frustrated that Rafael and Eurofighter aren't quite exactly what they want in terms of capability. So you build a heavyweight, you know, the markets, the number that they uh, came up with when they made the GCAP announcement earlier this week was a few hundred planes. I think they'll do better than that, but that's the Middle Eastern market. It's a few hundred very expensive, high-end, hundred and something million per copy plane. Now, the downside, of course, is that you've just lost the European market. You know, would Sweden never join? <laughs> something that was an F-15 plus plus? I think not. Uh, this is Japan, Britain, and a few high-end Middle Eastern customers. So it's it's complicated, but I think it's a very sound, very targeted market strategy. Uh, Ron, do you want to add anything to this in terms of sort of the broader competitive dynamic? Yeah, I mean, you know, international markets obviously are always important to um, U.S. defense contractors. So having uh, you know, kind of more vibrant competition out there um, has its positives and negatives, right? I mean, you know, on the positive side, as you, as you frequently hear, kind of, um, it helps them raise the game, so on and so forth. But on the negative side, it makes other countries you know, potentially uh, less beholden to U.S. equipment. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, we all know these, these international development programs can take a while to, to really pan out to be something. So I would say in the short to medium term, there's really not much of a threat to U.S. weapon sales as you get out to the longer term. And if one of these efforts really does you know, come to fruition, uh, then maybe it's a different story. But that's, that's something I don't think we really have to really worry about, at least not for the medium term. Just, just really quickly, and I'm, I'm not trying to underestimate um, British industrial capability or Italian or Japanese uh, uh, capabilities. But ultimately, I think there's a tendency of folks sort of underestimating exactly how hard developing a, an integrated fifth generation airplane is. Uh, it took the United States a lot of time and money, whether for the F-22 and for the F-35, but they're both delivering and the United States has a lot of stealth experience that no other country on the planet has. Um, Ron, are folks sort of underestimating this and, and very quickly, uh, uh, Sash, to you, like what are the, what's the GCAP program doing to try to make up for this, right? Eurofighter is a terrific airplane. Combat system has always been criticized as not really, you know, up to the kind of snuff and level that the, the U.S. generates really quickly from uh, both of you, Ron first and then uh, Sash. Yeah, I mean, of course they are. I mean, everybody who's designing a kit that's going to fly, uh, be it in military markets, commercial markets, or you know, call it even in electric aircraft markets today, is underestimating the difficulty to get a product to market. Um, you know, so so for sure they are. It'll take it'll take longer. 
Uh, you, know, you just have to remind everybody that you know, F-35, as we know it today, started out in some form or another of a white paper uh, maybe 30 years ago. And we got what we got. And that's not to say that it's got to take 30 years, but um, to pull one of these off and, and make it you know, robust and thoughtful and, and useful, it can take a really long time. Sash? I'm actually going to disagree with Ron, uh, which is, you know, fairly, fairly rare for us. Um, F-35 suffered from the fact that it was being developed when nobody really wanted a new combat aircraft or needed a new combat aircraft. It was, we were in a time of peace where the easiest thing to do was to, you know, get another study, push things out to the right a bit, rob it of a bit of funding because there was a more attractive program elsewhere. And there was no, there was no impetus. There was no hurry. Um, there was no pressure. I, I got the very clear, I've, I've got the very clear impression in the last year, frankly, but it was certainly reinforced at the Paris Air Show that we are seeing that absolutely change as a consequence of not just the war in Ukraine, but the changed geopolitical uh, environment. Um, and don't underestimate the degree to which Europeans have this real concern, uh, you know, not even the back of their minds, but in the front of their minds that they might have to tr deal with President Trump again in um, in 18 months uh, time, in which case we're not going to get the support that we've been uh, used to from President Biden. And we're not going to get the access to technology either, in which case we're going to have to make it work. And particularly, you know, even if that doesn't happen, if the US pivots to the Pacific, then Europe becomes less important relatively uh, to the US. And again, Europeans are going to have to spend more. We'll, and so that what there is now is a pressure within the European defence industry to bring things forward and to do things faster. What does that mean? It means that in, a, in case of a programme like this, I think that um, not necessarily corners will be cut, but there will be a pretty ruthless focus on what can be achieved for you know, this spiral compared to a, a spiral you know, a couple of, couple of years down the line. Do we need to develop an all singing, all dancing system of systems from the get go? Or actually, can that be inserted separately, um, either because uh, part of the combat cloud gets uh, de-risked in France's case on Rafale, in the UK and Italy's case on, um, on uh, Eurofighter, but you don't need to pace the aircraft based on you know, the combat cloud. I think that's, that's what will happen. Um, yeah, stealth is hard, but you know, it's not as if some European companies don't have some, you know, some significant experience of it. Uh, it's just been done in a, in a, you know, in a rather different way and not with a, with a fourth generation combat aircraft. Uh, um, but I think, the, I think the, the pressure to do things now quickly, and in the UK's case, the pressure from Japan to do things quickly is quite remarkable. That's a dynamic we haven't seen you know, since the end of the 80s. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to, uh, Richard, I want to get your take on this. But what what is, and I don't want to sound like an ugly American, what is the extensive stealth experience that I should be looking for that I might not be seeing? Because as far as I can tell, the United States has been fielding airplanes with a degree of stealth for very many decades. So yeah, I'm, so, I'm just, so, so, and I know so other people in the audience will be asking that same question. I think it would be very, um, I, I think you'd be underestimating things to think that the current generation of European combat aircraft do not have degrees as degrees of low observability or at least ra reduced radar cross-section in them. 
that that has oh, been. Oh no, a I accept. I accept that. I'm just sort of saying a proper fifth generation integrated aircraft. Fine. No, look, crack on. We'll see you in a couple of years. Actually, is what okay. I would say. All right. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Right. Uh, R- Richard, uh, and, and I'm, I'm wishing you luck. I'm, not, I'm just saying, having covered this program for 30 years, more than 30 years, I can't even believe I'm saying that. You know, it, it was, you know, it wasn't just that they didn't want it. I mean, there were a whole bunch of errors we made, and it was an airplane that was trying to do everything for everybody. There's a much clearer mission in terms of what GCAP uh, is trying to do. It's not artificially constrained by the size of invincible class aircraft carrier elevators, which um you know settled on its footprint uh originally richard you got the last word on this and i'm gonna then i'm gonna go back to sash because i do want to get his uh sense on uh cluster munitions and then run on production capability go ahead yeah i mean you know first of all of course the u.s has decades of stealth aircraft manufacturing integration design experience that's going to be tough to catch up to on the other hand uh the u.s has chosen to go down the NGAD path which is not going to be an exportable plane. So in other words, uh, when it comes to sixth gen planes, uh, what will be on the market? Well, uh, NGAD, i.e. it won't be on the market. F-35 plus, 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 technology doesn't stay right. in its own classified universe for so long forever. You know, decade after decade, and of course, you know the fact that BAE and Rolls and other companies do have involvement in the F thirty five. No matter how robust those firewalls you think are, they're probably not. So there's flow through. They're going to learn stuff. By the time we're talking about here, um, I don't have much doubt that this will be, if not a generation six plane, a generation five point five plane, more than the equal of the F thirty five and GAD. Not there. In other words. If you're a customer of export, an export stealth fighter, this is probably going to be one of the things you look at most closely. Uh, in uh, in uh, indeed, um, Sash, I'm going to go back uh, to you. President Biden uh, admitted on national uh, television that we're running out of artillery shells uh, to be able to give the United States, and uh, the Ukrainians are going to be in tough shape if we don't start sending them cluster munitions. Uh, and in part because also the military utility. Um, This has become a controversial decision for some, including in the United States, even though U.S. weapons are far superior to the versions the Russians are using, and the Ukrainians have no evidence that they indiscriminately use these weapons the way the Russians do against civilians. So the equivalency argument to me just doesn't work, and the United States maintains vast cluster bomb um, inventories as well as landmine inventories, in part because we may have to fight the North Koreans, uh, which is um, going to be a very, very different uh, kind of a, a, a ball game. Anyway, as as our resident gunner uh, and soldier, w- 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 you know what what are what's the difference that this capability is going to be making on the battlefield, and then more broadly, what is it we need to be doing as an alliance? to turn the corner on this ammunition problem, because for the United States to admit that we're not, or that we're in a pinch on shells is a problematic issue, even though we're trying to surge that production, we're not gonna see the fruits of that until until next year. And Ron, I wanna pull you in on this as well. So talk to us about utility, why this is the right decision, the right time, how this helps the Ukrainians, and what's the broader context we need to be thinking about in terms of replenishing these stocks. Because at this point, we're saying, well, we're making a decision that we might not otherwise make because we're running out of the other bullets to give the guy who we're helping. Uh, It isn't the right decision and it isn't the right time. Uh, It is a function of the fact that 
the United States perceives itself to have run out of ammunition. Actually, what you haven't done, what you, uh, you, you haven't drawn down your, your, your stocks probably as deep as some European countries have because you have, uh, quite understandably, other priorities. But uh, I, I think it's very regrettable um, that clustered munitions being sent to Ukraine for a couple of reasons. One, however you use them, they are, uh, they are indiscriminate in a way that no other weapon is. Um, and what is fascinating is that where we, the West, have weaned ourselves away from cluster munitions, we've ended up with way better capabilities as a consequence. If you looked at Western uh, artillery uh, arsenals 35 years ago, all of our multi-launch rocket systems fired cluster munitions, and a portion of our 155 millimeter uh, had um, uh, cluster munitions uh, in it as well. And this was considered to be the way we fought. They were fortunately, um, uh, if not banned, certainly, uh, they, they became unacceptable um, due to the Ottawa con uh, Convention. And um, we ended up with, with the uh, GMRS unitary uh, rocket for the multi-launch rocket system, which is way superior. And uh, you know, with the Excalibur um, guided projectile for 155, again, which has just changed the way that artillery is used as a precision strike uh, rather than a, you know an, an area uh, weapon, um, I did a uh, a short course uh, to learn how to call in close air support in an emergency. This was before um, Afghanistan, and what was fascinating then was that we were explicitly told in the British Army, you ask the aircraft overhead what munitions they have, and you know what they can help you with. And remember, this is emergency cas. We're we're in, in contact, we're desperate. That's the scenario. But if a US aircraft says, I have CBUs, cluster bomb units, you said, as a, you said, thanks very much, but no thanks. It was considered to be not, uh, not just not acceptable, but so high risk to use CBUs. Um, and effectively, at best, you were laying your own minefield in front of yourself, which you would have to advance through. And at worst, if you got um, uh, the CBUs falling back on you, that was a really unattractive option. So, you know, they're not better than everybody else's. Cluster bombs of any sort are much more indiscriminate than the manufacturers would like to claim. We're going to have to clear these things up, much rather they didn't come to Europe. Sorry. Um, uh, and, and so what is the industrial answer to this, uh, right, in terms of surging bullet production? And how is it, as an alliance, oh. we need to be taking a different approach to this? Because if it wasn't for Rheinmetall buying Spanish capability and, you know, and Koreans getting involved, it doesn't seem to me like we have some sort of holistic roadmap for making, you know, shells. And I agree with you about the importance of precision and the precision yeah. that that then drove. Uh, right. Yeah. I am by no stretch of the imagination, a cluster bomb fan. Um, I'm just saying that ours tend to be good. I mean, even the piece of footage that's used of uh, the Russian uh, attack, and I don't remember exactly where it is, you know, they always highlight that one munition that falls off to the side and, and doesn't immediately detonate. But actually, if you if you watch that film after 30 or so seconds, that one detonates as well. I'm, I'm not condoning. You need to have a broader strategic plan. What's the kind of broader strategic plan do we need if even the United States at this point? It, it is more to me a manifestation of the admission by the United States that is particularly problematic to me, even if I'm not a fan of cluster munitions. What governments have to do is to start mandating priorities, national priorities, and in the case of uh, Europe, European priorities for supply of key chemicals. 
uh, nitric acid, and hence the, you know, the key feedstock for nitroglycerin, um, is a key chemical. Priority has to be given to the arms industry. As long as governments don't do that, you have um, expansion of munitions capability is ham hamstrung by the fact that the chemicals industry is selling to whoever uh, whoever's to pay, prepared to pay most for it and is not selling to the people that need it most, which is the munitions companies. Um, that's, that's what's required in the first instance. And if you don't use, I think it's the War Powers Act in the US to, uh, to focus uh, supply of the key ingredients, um, then uh, it's going to take a long time to ramp up. This is a problem that has existed for at least 180 years. Every single war that the UK has been into and then the US has been into, we have had a shell crisis within the first couple of years uh, and then we've overcome it and ended, you know, uh, ended a couple of years down the line producing sufficient shells for the requirements. And then at the end of the war, governments always turn off the tap and say, well, we're never going to need that again. There is a big problem uh, that I think the US in particular has got that we drew horribly false lessons, particularly from the first Iraq war. And the person who, who created the phrase the Iron Mountain and said, we took all, this muni all these munitions to Saudi Arabia and we never used them, so we don't need them again, has got a lot to answer for here. But you know, in the first instance, um, it's the precursor chemicals that are the, uh, the key supply item here. And then probably next, it's steel forgings for the, uh, uh, for the shells. Beyond that, actually, the US has got pretty good arsenals. They've got to, but, you know, they've, they've clearly got to put the components through them. Europe, I think, will, will get there. You're starting to see, say, Rheinmetall, but also uh, NAMO, and to an extent, Nexa and BAE, um, ramping up. But there has to be, a, you know, they have to be convinced this is a five-year business case. All governments have got to put the money there. Um, I, I should uh, put in uh, a plug for all of the leaders who were talking about uh, the Iron Mountain, having been uh, familiar with them and covered this at the time. It wasn't necessarily specifically about ammunition. Rather, every, you know, we were sending 100 toilet, you know, 100 toilets there, even though we didn't need 100 toilets, right? So let's tr try to do the delivery in a better way, as opposed to just indiscriminately sending everything, literally including, you know, spare kitchen sinks over there, uh, which is uh, the way we used to do it. But the, but the point is, is taken. Ron, um, you've been tracking this in terms of the investment the United States is making some very uh, welcome multi-billion dollar investments. But at the end of the day, we're now admitting we don't have enough and we have to maintain reserve capacity. And I'm gonna bet you 25 cents, Russia has moved to a war economy where it has a lot of factories that are building a lot of shells that they've been building for a very long period of time. And indeed, the Russians are firing 152s and you know 122s and all of this ammunition that they've had in their inventory. And I think they could shoot it for another couple of years and still not run out of bullets because the bullets are the same bullets that they've had in inventory for a long time. Do, are, are you getting, what, what more are you seeing in terms of what the United States is doing? And what are the things that maybe I know that you talk to senior leaders about industrial strategy. What are some of the things that actually we need to be considering doing to build up this capability? And I'm going to have a, a good conversation in the next week or two uh, with folks on the industrial base side, hopefully, who can help us with this. But take it away and bring us home. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just as simple as it's not that the DOD is doing nothing. The DOD recognizes problem reasonably early on. It just takes the flywheel that the supply chain is time to get moving. And we've seen orders being made, substantial orders for all kinds of different products, everything from 155 millimeter shells 
to more advanced uh, missiles and missile systems. Uh, it, and it just takes time for it to just kind of work through the process. And that's where we are. I would expect in the second half of this year, particularly the fourth quarter into the first quarter of next year, volumes of this stuff will start to be delivered out of the system to replenish U.S. inventories, maybe some of it to go directly to the Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the way to get the, the kit to the field quick, right, was to just pull it out of U.S. inventory. Inventory levels have come down. That opened a debate. What should the proper inventory level be? If we had 10 of these before, do we go back to 10 or do we go to something higher? It does seem like the debate has come to, we'll go to something higher. Okay, fine. You know, then all that has to get kind of pushed through the system. It just takes time. You know, the, 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 you know, for better or for worse, the U.S. procurement system isn't particularly fast. Uh, but it does need to get a lot faster. And I think there needs to be, I think if, if anything should be driving uh, a greater sense of urgency, it's that we, you know, as, as Admiral Rob Bauer, the chairman of NATO's military committee points out, we are, all of us are drawing from inventories that were not entirely full in the first place, um, which, which was the point that he made, particularly in Europe. And I know that we're all working on this and they're working groups at every level. But I think that we all as an alliance need to do better because um, we're, we're all sort of coming up against the, this. And the, the, one, the one angle I find fascinating on this, just absolutely fascinating, cluster munitions as a, as a class, no publicly traded defense company wants to touch them because from a you know, ESG investing, environmental, social governance investing point of view, they're, they're the third rail. They're, pardon the pun, they're nuclear. So, you know, companies that did do some of this on some level have gotten out of it. You know, probably one of the higher profile ones was Textron made the sensor-fused weapon, which was a very, very useful weapon. And I think you could argue actually not, you know, a very controlled weapon and not harmful to uh, civilians, although it got thrown into this class of weapons. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of this weird thing where, the defense industrial base itself, an attempt to be ESG, isn't supporting fabrication of cluster munitions, but the U.S. government itself is actually being very anti-ESG. Just sort of a weird conundrum. It, it, it is indeed. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure, uh, as always, especially given how busy uh, you guys are and how globally distributed uh, this operation is uh, on a weekly basis. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to seeing you all uh, live and in person out at uh, sunny uh, RAF uh, Fairford. Uh, and to our audience, thanks so very much for joining us. And on Monday, tune in uh, for our normal Monday show and regular uh, weekly uh, programming. Thanks very much to all of you for listening. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible uh, each day.